0: Oxidative stress, at least on the physiological or cellular level, is really an imbalance between sort of levels of reactive oxygen species and defenses against them.
1: Human OS. Learn. Master. Achieve. Welcome back everybody to HumanOS Radio. Today I have with me Nimi Shirazuhiza. She is an associate professor of genetics and development at Columbia and the principal investigator in the Shirazuhiza lab. Mimi received her PhD in biology from UCSF and served as a postdoctoral fellow at Stanford University in the David Schneider lab. Currently, her lab uses circadian mutants of fruit flies or drosophila to unveil the molecular mechanisms underlying circadian regulated physiology with a particular focus on the roles of immunity and in neurological disease. I became aware of Mimi's work when I saw a publication that recently came out in PLOS Biology entitled, A Bidirectional Relationship Between Sleep and Oxidative Stress in Drosophila. What is the relationship between sleep and oxidative stress? So without further ado, Mimi, welcome to the show.
0: Hi, thanks for having me is really a pleasure. I've been
1: thinking about this idea that determining the purpose of sleep has really been a challenge for so long. And we certainly know that many important things happen during the process of sleep to aid in repair and the functioning of the human body for the next day. And we know that there are serious consequences to both getting acute sleep loss and also for not getting enough sleep on a regular basis, so a chronic level. And so in your work, you're exploring this connection between sleep and oxidative stress. And so the first thing I want to do is do a little housekeeping, if you will. And perhaps we can define what we need when we're talking about oxidative stress for our listeners who don't know that?
0: Okay, well, oxidative stress, at least on the physiological or cellular level, is really an imbalance between sort of levels of reactive oxygen species and defenses against them. So that's sort of very simplified, but the cell has various mechanisms to control damage caused by oxidative or by reactive oxygen species. And generally, there's a fairly tight regulation Of the levels of reactive oxygen species that are sort of allowed to run around in the cell. So, Mm -hmm. if you have a little bit more than usual, that will induce oxidative stress responses that will then dampen the levels of reactive oxygen species. In general, that's a pretty good homeostatic system. Oxidative stress is any time that that is out of whack Mm -hmm. and you have more. Stress on the system than it can take at that given moment.
1: Recently, I interviewed Professor Michael Ristow, and we talked about the story of this oxidative theory of aging, where the thinking was that if you can eliminate all free radicals because they do damage, then that would be a good thing. What we've now learned is that reactive oxygen species play an incredibly important role in triggering cellular mechanisms that lead to all sorts of healthy outcomes. So things like improving the oxidative status of the cell by triggering the production of internal endogenous antioxidants to triggering the differentiation of stem cells and activating anti-cancer pathways. And so you don't want to eliminate those, but you also want to keep them under control.
0: That's right. Exactly. That makes perfect sense to a lot of people. You want to have a little bit of a good thing, but not too much of a bad thing. There's a reason why reactive oxygen species are allowed to exist in the cell evolutionarily, and they do play very important messenger and signaling roles. It's important to note when I first started my lab at Columbia, we really focused on circadian regulation of immunity. And we were looking at various immune responses and metabolic responses that were circadian regulated that contributed to pathogenesis with a variety of different bacterial infections. And one of our main tools in studying circadian immunity was to look at circadian mutants and ask what was their phenotype when stressed by infection with different pathogens. What didn't always sit super well with me was that, you know, these circadian mutants, some of them didn't sleep particularly well. Mm -hmm. And I know for myself, I mean, it's very anecdotal, right? But it's very intuitive. When I don't sleep, I get sick. And when I get sick, I feel sleepy. I thought Mm -hmm. it seemed like there would be a role for sleep in, in immunity. And that's really what we wanted to study, but couldn't. There weren't really good tools to study that for a long time. In the last five or 10 years, these sleep mutants have been discovered in Drosophila that have perfectly good circadian regulation, but don't sleep very much. So the timing of their sleep is normal, but they sleep less than wild type. And so we thought that would be a really great opportunity to dissect the two different contributions of circadian regulation and sleep to immunity against bacterial infection, right? So we thought, okay, perfect. I put a student on this project. She gave her a whole bunch of bacterial pathogens and said, find a phenotype. (laughs) And she comes back to me and says, you know, I can't find a consistent phenotype. What she had done is collected a whole bunch of very diverse short sleeping mutants. So these are mutants that are all short sleeping, but they're short sleeping for different reasons. They're mutant for different genes and different pathways and different mechanisms. And we thought if immunity against infection is a function of sleep, then all of these mutants, no matter what the reason for their short sleep, they're all short sleeping. They're all going to be sensitive to that particular pathogen.
1: It makes perfect sense. Yeah. Unless somehow the mutation conferred some sort of protective effect, then otherwise right. you've got multiple reasons that are causing these particular flies to sleep less. And now yeah. we can really study if sleep itself has an important role here in-,
0: in immunity. And But unfortunately, there wasn't a consistent response. Like, you know, some of the mutants were... Sensitive to infection, some of them were resistant to infection, some of them were perfectly wild type to infection. It just depended on the infection. They had phenotypes sort of across the board, it was variable. And we thought, well, it seems like if it was something really core, like really fundamental, they would all have the same response or the same defect. And Mm. at that point, we thought, well, maybe our hypothesis is totally incorrect. And these guys, they're short sleeping, but they're short sleeping for different reasons. And so maybe they won't have a common phenotype. And I actually told my student, maybe we should find her a different project. (laughs) But she was very persistent. You know, she'd gotten hooked on the idea that we could potentially use these mutants to find a common function for sleep. And she asked for a little more time on the project. I said, sure. And she went ahead and tested a variety of different stresses and eventually found that every single short sleeping mutant that we had collected was sensitive to oxidative stress. And she Mm -hmm. tested a couple of different ways of delivering oxidative stress. And every single time there was a pretty strong and consistent phenotype. so we decided Mm -hmm. that we'd been barking up the wrong tree in fact it wasn't infection at least in drosophila the drosophila immune system is quite different from mammals so if this sleep may be involved in immunity in mammals but at least in the fly what we could find was that this very evolutionarily conserved process sleep is required for a very evolutionarily conserved function which is defense against oxidative stress.
1: When you think about the utility of Drosophila or fruit fly and its applicability to humans, talk about this model is actually useful for an evaluation and for such an investigation.
0: Well, the fruit fly is really powerful mostly because of its genetics. It's been studied for a very long time and it's very manipulable in terms of individual gene function. We know a lot about it and we have a lot of tools that we can use to overexpress, delete, or otherwise manipulate in a tissue specific way the very specific individual gene function. The other thing that's nice about the fruit fly is that even though it seems really different, from us it's actually very similar on the genomic level and in terms of conserved physiologies like metabolism or sleep there are more similarities and differences with humans So the model of Drosophila in terms of sleep has been pretty well established in the last five or 10 years. People Mm -hmm. have proven that there are a lot of basic similarities and a lot of the genes that have been found, just like for circadian rhythm, which there were those three guys who got the Nobel Prize last year for their work on circadian regulation in Drosophila. One of the reasons they did get the Nobel is because they were, A, they were the first to discover circadian regulatory genes, but B... It turns out the machinery is really similar in fly as it is in humans. So everything that they discovered in the fly turns out to be applicable to humans. Sleep is a similarly very ancient, evolutionarily conserved behavior, meaning almost all animals we know sleep in some way or another. And that sleep is characterized by very similar types of hallmarks. Two of which are, for example, regulated basically by two different mechanisms, one of which is circadian biology Mm -hmm. that regulates the timing of sleep and a mysterious homeostatic mechanism that regulates the amount that you sleep. So for both flies and people, if you don't get to sleep as much as you need to, then at the next opportunity that you have to sleep, you'll sleep more, Mm -hmm. suggesting that there's something keeping track of how much you need to sleep and trying to get you that amount of sleep when it can.
1: This concept of the homeostat, it's measuring some factors that are building up when you're awake. And then that is then partially determining the type of sleep that you get. So if you're awake longer, then you sleep longer.
0: That's exactly right. Yep. So when people started studying sleep in Drosophila, one of the main goals of that work was to try and understand the sleep homeostat, because we understand that circadian biology fairly well, again, using Drosophila, but the sleep homeostat is really mysterious. And we don't understand the mechanisms by which sleep amount and quality get regulated. And that's an important problem for people, especially in modern day society. Yeah. I mean, I don't know about you, I'd never sleep enough.
1: (laughs) I travel the world talking about it. I talk about it on my show. I speak to organizations about it. And it's still a challenge.
0: It is. That's right. It's still
1: a challenge to really optimize it in our world. We're sort of fighting an uphill battle. And and yet having good information about its determinants and technology that can support us and all this. Luckily, it's one of these things that we can work against. It's not this force that's high in the sky that we really just can't do anything about. With the right knowledge, we can act in the right way. And yet we're increasingly learning of all the different things that do have an impact in this area. So great explanation of why we use fruit flies, why it's relevant and how they have this sleep homeostat and also circadian processes that are partially determining This situation as well. So, what did you exactly do with these fruit flies in your experiment?
0: So, we exposed them to two different types of oxidative stress, one of which is paraquat, which was actually a pesticide that's no longer used now because it generates oxidative stress and has been associated with Parkinson's. So, knowing that it messes up mitochondrial function and generates a lot of oxidative stress, if you inject it into an animal, you're giving them a very specific high dose of oxidative stress of stress and sort of overpowering their natural cellular antioxidant defenses and basically just count the number of days until they die or hours, however the case may be. And we tested a panel of short-sleeping mutants and their wild-type controls and just compared okay. or asked whether the short-sleepers were sensitive to paraquat injection relative mm. to the wild-type. And in fact they were in every single mm. case. And we could do this it it's very consistent. We could do this experiment over and over again and get the same results. So to test whether or not that was specific to the types of reactive oxygen species that are generated by paraquat. we tried a different source of oxidative stress, hydrogen peroxide. So hydrogen peroxide actually is a reactive oxygen species. So we injected that directly and also fed that to our short sleeping mutants and compared their survival to their wild type controls and found again that they were across the board sensitive to that source of oxidative stress. So now we have a correlation that these short sleeping mutants are sensitive to oxidative stress, but to show causality, we had to turn the experiment around. So we used two different methods to increase sleep and ask what was the effect on their response to oxidative stress as far as survival. The two methods that we used were, one was genetic, So by stimulating sleep regulatory neurons in the brain, by overexpressing a particular ion channel, we could get the flies to sleep more and then we tested them for their response to oxidative stress in both Mm -hmm. forms again. And consistent with our hypothesis, increasing sleep caused the flies to become now resistant to oxidative stress. So you yes. took
1: short sleeping mutants and then you did some genetic manipulation to make them sleep more by modifying a ion channel in a sleep active area.
0: Right. We actually did that with just wild type flies. So okay. otherwise wild type flies, right? Just come at it from a clean slate so to speak, in case yeah. of there was something messed up, as you were saying about some other extra effect that their genetics were having. So starting with wild-type flies, had them sleep more either genetically by stimulating the sleep regulatory centers in their brains mm-hmm. or pharmacologically. So we fed them a GABA-A agonist that caused them to fall asleep or sleep more, and then again, tested them for oxidative stress. And sure enough, again, they were resistant to oxidative stress relative to untreated flies.
1: Very interesting. So do we know anything about sleep staging in flies?
0: We don't do electrophysiology ourselves, but as far as I know, there isn't really the same kind of staging of sleep in the same way as with with mammals. Since we don't really know what the function of sleep is, we don't really know what the functions of each of those stages are either. So it's kind of interesting to think about whether or not different types of sleep confer different kinds of benefits.
1: Yeah, very good point. So all we do know here is that given either genetic manipulation or pharmacologically with gaba agonists, you were able to increase the time spent sleeping in these fruit flies. And then that conferred protection against these two forms of oxidative stress. One, this herbicide, paraquat, that catalyzes the production of superoxide anions. And then secondly, a direct oxidant, which is hydrogen peroxide. Was there a reason why you chose these two distinct oxidative stressors?
0: Not really. I mean, for technical reasons, but also they've been used in the field quite widely um, with mm-hmm. fruit flies in particular, but also to test the generality of the susceptibility to oxidative stress. Okay. We've also done it with hyperoxia. That wasn't mm-hmm. included in the paper, but that's more recent work. But just to sort of figure out if the method of delivery of oxidative stress or the source of or type of oxidative stress, whether or not that was important, whether or not it was, there was something specific that we could learn. But it really does seem like it's a very general function.
1: They sleep shorter, they more susceptible to this form of stress. If they sleep longer, they become more resistant. What was the next step
0: then? So this is where we get to the oxidative flux theory. This fellow Raymond in the 90s who proposed a hypothesis without any data, but it's an interesting idea that basically the brain is a very metabolically active tissue and metabolic activity generates reactive oxygen species and oxidative stress, which he speculated would build up in the brain and trigger sleep. And that sleep, by shutting down the metabolic activity of the brain, would then allow antioxidant processes to clear the reactive oxygen species and restore homeostasis. And then at a certain point, you'd have a low threshold of oxidative stress that would be hit and the brain would wake up. So this was sort of his hypothesis for how the homeostat works. Interesting. Um, it makes sense in an intuitive way, right? Like if this is the function yeah. of sleep, then you would want some part of the machinery that's controlling sleep to sense some part of the product of sleep or the function of sleep. Sort of like yeah. a thermostat in your house, a thermometer, a heat sensor to tell what the temperature is so it knows when to turn on and off the heat and keep your house within a window temperature and speculated that oxidative stress would somehow trigger sleep and that's if sleep was taking care of oxidative stress so because of this we set out to see if changes in oxidative stress in the brain since we know that the brain is sleep regulatory at least part of the sleep regulation machinery We thought, well, if we change oxidative stress in the brain, maybe that will change sleep behavior. So my student overexpressed antioxidant enzymes in all neurons in the brain, sort of a hammer approach. And Mm. sure enough, what it did is decrease the amount of sleep of the individual fly, which Mm -hmm. suggests that, you know, by not having as much oxidative stress, they don't need to sleep as much.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. So is the ability of sleep to reduce oxidative stress entirely about reduced energetic load, due to the relatively low energy expenditure that we have during sleep? Or are there oxidative processes that are permitted during distinct sleep states, for example, that make the handling of oxidative stress optimized to occur during the sleep period. Is it really just energetics or is it also
0: induction of specific responses or both? Yeah, we don't know. That's the thing about this study. It's very intriguing, but it's all the tip of the iceberg is how we feel because there's so much that needs to be done. I mean, we express antioxidant enzymes in the entire brain. We know that there are sleep regulatory circuits. So are some of those sleep regulatory circuits also the places that sense reactive oxygen species or oxidative stress, or are those, a completely different set of neurons. We don't know. Are there defenses that get triggered during sleep, or is it really about just sort of shutting down metabolic load and just allowing the cell to catch up in a way to clean up of oxidative stress by just not generating as much during sleep? And we think this is partly why this very clear relationship wasn't discovered previously. It's actually very hard to deprive animals of sleep without inducing a lot of stress. And the stress itself could potentially produce confounding consequences. When Raymond proposed this hypothesis in the 90s, there was a raft of studies After that, that tried to come up with evidence either for or against the hypothesis, and there was compelling evidence on both sides. But I think it really all of the data were at the time based on sleep deprivation studies of rodents that were pretty stressful for the rodents. So I think it really took having a genetic model where we could do sort of chronic sleep deprivation as opposed to very stressful acute sleep deprivation to be able to parse
1: this out. And I think you'll find this interesting. I've experimented with and noticed that taking antioxidants prior to bedtime can have a really negative impact on my sleep.
0: (gasps) Is that right?
1: Yes. And a study recently came out, I think it was NSAIDs or aspirin, suggested that they actually disrupt sleep. So it wasn't that it was reducing my sleep need, but it makes me feel like I wake up in the morning, like I didn't get any sleep at all. And it makes it harder to go to sleep. Secondarily, if I took something like glutathione or superoxide dismutase, which you can buy in the form of a supplement in the morning, I would notice a quality of arousal that was different than, let's say, caffeine. It was more of a clarity in thinking. Wow. Yes, I know. Quite interesting.
0: (laughs) Do you often experiment on yourself, Dan?
1: (laughs) In a way, this is sort of the field of biohacking. Mm. Interesting, because there's evidence-based medicine, which is really about the quality of evidence that you have. And then there's all this new research that comes out that doesn't quite have the level of confidence behind it through many different trials suggesting that, yes, there's a consistent effect here. But for things that seemingly have low risk, but some reward, I like the idea of investigating to see if they can add meaningfully to my wake time experience or the depth of sleep that I get. It's very challenging to come up with something that's definitively good.
0: It is a very challenging problem in the clinic as well. So many people come in, according to my friends who are clinicians, sleep clinicians, and have a hard time sleeping. Thing. And I, I went to a talk at a meeting recently and somebody had a quote that was sort of modification of Dostoevsky, basically said something along the lines of every happy mm-hmm. sleeper is the same, but every bad sleeper is unique. Mm-hmm. <laughs> do you, know the, do you know the quote that I'm talking about? is like every, every happy family is pretty much the same, but every bad family is pretty much unique. Yeah. Yeah, there are so many different ways to not sleep well. Right. (laughs) And I think the problem is we don't know enough about how different aspects of sleep may affect physiology. We don't know how sleep itself is regulated or what its functions are in different aspects of our physiology. It's such a fundamental mystery of science Mm -hmm. left. It's amazing to me how little we know about such a core behavior, one that affects our daily lives so fundamentally, right? So I'm hoping that this will open the door for a lot of people to start at least thinking about or considering oxidative stress on the cellular level in terms of sleep function.
1: Yeah. What I have arrived now is we understand that the currency of energy usage, adenosine, plays a role from work of Terra Porca, and and others. We that, how that relates to the triggering of immune molecules like TNF-alpha and interleukin-1 that are sort of fundamental to the initiation of sleep and things like right. plasticity that takes place during sleep. I think the homeostat in my mind is probably influenced by a lot of different secondary signals. Absolutely. And oxidative stress is perfectly plausible to be one of those.
0: Exactly. And certainly it seems like at least in the fly is a function of sleep. So the more that we can figure out about this very, very complicated physiological process, is, I think the
1: better. If one of the functions of sleep is to act as an antioxidant for both the brain and the body, increasing overall resistance to acute oxidative challenges, then leading to change in sensitivity of cells in various ways so that they are prepared for the next day of oxidative stress. Are things that are thought to be good inducers of health like? plant phytochemicals, exercise, et cetera, that induce reactive oxygen species. Do we need to proportion our intake of phytochemicals and the length of exercise if we are chronically undersleeping? If You're getting really good sleep night after night, you can tolerate more. And if you're not, maybe what's right for you is none or a little bit. And that's a question that's probably really hard to answer, but a very interesting one in my mind.
0: Absolutely. And in terms of a balance of oxidative stress and regulation and slash function of sleep, one thing we're really interested in is thinking about, this in the context of disease. There are a lot of diseases, particularly neurological diseases, that are associated with oxidative stress. So if we're not sleeping enough or we're exposing ourselves to more oxidative stress than we need to, how Mm -hmm. does that impact an individual who's genetically sensitized to neurological diseases that exacerbate their symptoms?
1: So sleep restriction correlates with diseases that are also associated with oxidative stress. Things like Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's, Huntington's, there's a pretty clear connection between sleep and those conditions. So that could be the mediating influences here.
0: Right. You know, for a long time, it was thought that they were symptoms of pathology, but they may in fact be contributing to pathogenesis as well. So it's food for thought, right? Yes. (laughs) Makes you think about sleeping just a little bit more, at least putting some more effort into taking care of ourselves and sleeping more.
1: Does your lab plan to do more work now that you've found such an interesting connection here?
0: Yeah, we absolutely hope to keep working on this problem. I have a student who's looking at the sleep regulation um, and also function. We're interested in understanding, for example, which parts of the brain are required for the reactive oxygen induced sleep mm-hmm. and also thinking about which organs of the body might be particularly sensitive to oxidative stress you know the brain the gut muscles etc maybe all of them maybe Mm -hmm. the entire body needs sleep equally and then also thinking about tweaking metabolism or looking at metabolism and whether how metabolic processes the shift between wake and sleep is, is associated with a shift in whole body metabolism and cellular metabolism trying to figure out which aspects of that are fundamental to sleep and might be helping to clear oxidative stress.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: We're moving towards a metabolic definition of sleep. Mm, Sleep as a process that is regulated by the brain for the body
1: every different tissue has its sensitivity to oxidative stress calibrated to its own energy usage. And I would imagine that areas of high energy usage would be more prone under conditions of deprivation and extra high energy usage because you're up longer right. to vulnerability. And that's where we see things like chronic disease take place.
0: Well, one would imagine, exactly. So, but the thing is to see if we can test that, if we can come up with experiments to test mm. that hypothesis or that prediction, and. We're still thinking about clever experiments we can do with Drosophila to test these very specific aspects of the model. Mm-hmm. But I think that's where all the fun comes in, is trying to come up with a very specific experiment to answer the question.
1: It feels like a rich area to
0: explore. Reactive oxygen species, that is a tricky beast. Yes. It's a very tightly regulated, really difficult measure and quantify, and both good and bad. In terms of Mm. their function and consequences, extremely complicated problem. And a moving target that changes over time. Target. That's right. That's right. Constantly moving and probably different in different parts of the body. And you know, all kinds of really incredibly sophisticated mechanisms to deal with reactive oxygen species. Yes, I imagine that this will be something that we could work on for a really long time.
1: (laughs) I definitely want to stay in touch to hear about what you find next. Thank you for the work you do and the time that you've taken to spend with us. And I'm sure our audience appreciates it as well.
0: Terrific. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. And come visit us soon at humanos.me.